This is the Naked Genetics Podcast, taking a look inside your genes. Building a baby is a complicated business with millions of cells needing to work together. So how does it happen? To be able to grow, they need to be able to communicate with each other. And so the growth factors are really important because that's how the cells communicate to each other. Plus, how big data is making big strides in big genes. And our gene of the month is going round and round in circles. This is the Naked Genetics podcast for July 2016 with me, Dr. Kat Arney, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I've been off on my travels over the past month, including taking a trip to a Gordon Research Seminar at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, which was focusing on molecules known as fibroblast growth factors, or FGFs. But what are they, and what do they do? Abby Fearon, a researcher from the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich and co-chair of the meeting, gave me the lowdown. Our cells need to be able to grow and divide, to be able to form organs and basically make up the whole human body. And to be able to grow, they need to be able to communicate with each other. And so the growth factors are really important because that's how the cells communicate to each other. So one cell will release growth factors and they will then go across to another cell and they'll bind to another protein that sits on the cell. And then that um, transfers a message into the cell that tells the cell to grow and divide. The conference that we're at is looking at fibroblast growth factors. Yeah. What are they? I mean, what's a fibroblast for a start? So fibroblasts um, are a specific cell type. Um, the name fibroblast growth factor is actually um, slightly confusing. It's basically these proteins were originally found in fibroblasts and um, it's thought that the, the, the people who, um, who discovered them basically found these proteins, chucked them on a specific cell type, found that it made those cells grow and divide, and so just called them fibroblast growth factors. But they're actually really important in loads of different types of cells. And how many different sorts of, of these growth factors, these FGFs, are there? So there are 23 different FGFs, I think. <laughs> I should probably know that, yeah, 23 different FGFs. Um, and there are four different FGF receptors. And so each of these different FGFs binds to another protein called an FGF receptor and that's how the signal gets transmitted into the cell um, and each of these different fibroblast growth factors binds to different receptors and so that's how you get sort of um, different signaling through the different pathways. Because these are involved in making lots and lots of different parts of the body so at some point there has to be a oh you're the signal to make uh, that part of the brain and you're the signal to make that part of the body. Exactly and that's what's really important so FGF receptor 2, for example, is what I worked on for my PhD, and that's particularly expressed um, in the uterus. And so only certain FGFs will bind to receptor 2 and will tell the uterine cells to grow and divide. But that those, there can be other FGFs around um, in the uterine cells that won't bind to that specific receptor, and so therefore you get this specificity that tells different cells to grow at different times, and that's also important, that the FGFs are released at different times, which makes the cells grow you know, in different stages. 
it's all about getting the right cells doing the right thing at the right time in the right place to, exactly. to make an organism. Exactly, yeah. And that's one thing that goes wrong in cancer. So these FGFs are really important. Um, well, go wrong in cancer quite often. So normally they're really um, tightly regulated so that the signal only happens at a specific time. But in cancer, we can have... Um, loads of these receptors, for example, that just signal without having any of the FGF bound to it. So then you lose all of the specificity and so then the cells just grow and divide uncontrollably. It's just saying, go, 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 do this. Exactly, yeah. And so what are some of the things that we now know about these FGFs and, and how can we use that knowledge? Um, so FGFs, the FGF receptors are particularly important, um, for example, in cancer. So there are drugs that will bind to the FGF receptors and can block them. And so if we know that we can block the receptors, then we know that we can... If, if this certain cancer is particularly reliant on that mutated FGF receptor, um, so the one that's overacting, um, if we can block that using a drug, then we can maybe treat patients who have got mutations in this specific receptor. But how does the cell know which signals to listen to and, and what's actually coming in if there's all these kind of signals and, and noise going on? There will always be a level of background noise. So you'll always have these multiple different um, proteins that are doing similar sort of things, but then you'll have um, a predominant pathway. So that's particularly important when you have these different cells that are signaling that are interacting so you get some proteins some fgfs that are released from a certain cell and though you will have more of that protein in the mixture so that signal will be the predominant signal well it's kind of like whoever's shouting loudest at the time gets heard exactly yeah that's an excellent way of putting it yeah <laughs> we're studying all these different kinds of signals and how cells communicate and how cells know what to do tell me a bit more about the work that you're doing what are you studying particularly um, so right now for my postdoctoral research, I work on the liver um, and the liver has this amazing capacity to be able to regenerate. So we can chop off about two thirds of the liver and it will grow back almost perfectly fine. Um, and it's the only organ that can do this. And so it's really un interesting to understand how that happens. And whilst we have um, a broad overview of, of that knowledge, we, we really need to, to understand a little bit more how it does this. Um, so my work at the moment is predominantly focused on trying to figure out how the liver regenerates. So you're studying the sort of signals that say, ah, something awful has happened, quick, we need to grow. Exactly. So these signals that are probably really important in um, development and then get switched off um, in normal, healthy humans are then somehow reactivated once the liver has had this massive injury. Um, for example, yeah, just chopping some of it off and that those signals can be um, reinitiated. And it's amazing that the liver can do this, but this isn't seen in other organs. Um, so there's lots of scope to, to, to why this might be relevant to lots of different, different tissues. That could be really amazing, couldn't it? If you could just add the right growth factors and, oh, I can grow my kidney back again because my kidney has become diseased or grow my arm back again because I've chopped my arm off. Is, is that a future that we could be looking at? Um, I mean, I think that's very, very far in the future and far away, but I suppose, I mean, this is the great thing about basic science as it's called, you know, we don't really, you don't know where it's going to end up. I mean, there are lots of different um, research projects that have started off just being because we don't understand what's happening and then have ended up being you know, a treatment for a cancer. So in the future, that could be really interesting. 
it's something that people don't really think about, that all our cells have got this crackling network of communication and all these signals mm-hmm. being sent around. And Is that how you, how you view biology now, as this sort of network of signals? Oh, yeah, com- completely. It's really strange now when I sometimes think about in the, in the day, I'm so focused down on this one small thing, but then you like zoom out slightly and it's this whole network of everybody talking to each other and there's so much background noise and how do we get the specificity and yeah it's very 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 visual in my mind them all talking <laughs> it must be like sort of sitting in, and being bombarded by a hundred different tv channels at once exactly it's just one massive conversation and then trying to break that down um is difficult but just absolutely fascinates me abby Fearon from the swiss federal institute of technology in zurich To find out a bit more about how FGF signalling is involved in building different parts of the body as a baby grows in the womb, I spoke to Jennifer Simmons from the National Institute of Dental and Craniofacial Research in Bethesda, Maryland. She's focusing on the role of these growth factors in making your mouth water, building the salivary glands that produce saliva, or spit, as it's more commonly known. So we want to understand what are the different stem cells within the human salivary gland. So most people don't think about salivary glands every day because they work, but when they stop working, you really miss them. And so salivary glands, they provide saliva, which lubricates the mouth, it helps for you to eat, but it also just maintains your oral health. So a lot of people who have salivary gland issues, they have a lot of uh, dental caries or cavities and they have a lot of dental health issues and their lives are very uncomfortable and can be very painful. And so in our laboratory, we're trying to understand what's going on within normal salivary glands so that we can develop therapies for patients who are not making enough saliva. And to do that, we are looking at the different stem cells so that maybe we could uh, turn these stem cells back on after damage like radiation or due to other diseases that can cause defects in salivary flow. So let's kind of go a little bit right back to basics. So where do our salivary glands come from? How, how yeah. do they start being made? So you have three major salivary glands. And uh, the next time that you bite into something sour like an orange, or if you take a sip of a, a soda, you'll feel little pings in the sides of your cheeks. And those are your salivary glands turning on because it's time to eat. You'll never notice it until you think about it. And now every time that I eat, I can feel them, these little tingly feelings in the sides of my cheeks. Those are the salivary glands turning on. And so they develop really early in development. So your tongue actually is two pieces. And when your tongue fuses together, that is when your salivary glands start. So right when your face is starting to look like a face, that's when the, sal- uh, the salivary glands start. So this is when like a human or an animal is, is growing in the womb and it's all kind of coming together. Yes. It's that early stage. Very early stage. Absolutely. How do you go about studying that and trying to figure out what's going on there? So we use mouse models in our laboratory, but you can use other animal models too. And so we also use pigs. We have micro pigs that we are looking at with a, a collaboration. I unfortunately don't get to work with the pigs. They look very cute. Um, but so yes, we study it in developing mouse embryos. What are you starting to understand about how the salivary glands form and maybe what's going wrong in some cases? Right, so the different cells within the salivary gland, they have to divide so that they can make up the salivary gland as it develops because it starts off as this very tiny, tiny little thing and it has to grow to be quite large because the salivary glands in the human, they take up a good portion of your cheek. 
And what do they actually look like? I and mean, what's the sort of the structure of a salivary gland? I can poke my face and I can't really feel anything. What does it look like inside? It actually looks like a tree. And so um, a salivary gland is a, a branching organ. And so like the branches of a tree, if you imagine the branches of a tree are uh, kind of like the highways of saliva that go into your mouth, and then the leaves of the tree are where where the saliva is formed. And so it kind of looks like a, like a bush or a tree, but it looks quite fluffy. It's actually a very pretty organ because it has all of these small circles at the end that make the saliva. It's a fluffy tree full of it's spit. It's a fluffy tree full of spit, absolutely. <laughs> and you have three of them on each side of your face. And so what do, you, what do we now know about the, kind of the, the genes that are controlling how these are made? What have we started to discover? So we've started to see that some of the genes that are important for other organs um, all over your body are also important in salivary glands, which is very exciting for not just people who study salivary glands like me, but for people who study other organs that resemble salivary glands and some that don't. And so there are certain markers of cells that we know uh, mark the different progenitor stem cells within these different tissues. And there are, a lot of them are the same in mammary gland and in pancreas and in other tissues. So you might not think that your mammary glands, your, your breasts, have anything to do with your salivary glands, but they're, they're kind of similar then? They're very similar. And so if you imagine the tree again, mammary glands are exactly like a tree that make milk. And so the leaves make milk, and it goes through the branches of the tree and then out the main duct. And so many different organs in your body have that tree kind of shape, which is why we call them branching organs. As the salivary glands or the mammary glands are developing, there have to be signals that say, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna do right. this here, we're gonna make this, this organ and, and do this branching. What are those signals? How, what have you discovered about how they're working? So there are specific proteins that are secreted by certain cells in these branching organs. And one that I'm studying is called fibroblast growth factor, and we call it FGF for short. And what we found in the salivary gland, and it's the same in other branching type tissues like mammary gland, is that you need FGFs in order to steer these signals to make these branches. Because like when a tree grows, you start with one shoot, maybe a few leaves, and then you get multiple different boughs and branches and multiple leaves. And we know that these factors, FGFs, are essential for this whole process. And is it the same FGFs that are in the salivary glands or in the pancreas or in other tissues because there's lots and lots of different types of FGFs, isn't there? That's right, there's many types of FGFs. And what we have found is that certain FGFs are especially important for this branching. And so my work has shown that FGF10 and the signaling that happens downstream, or what I mean is after the growth factor, this FGF comes in contact with the cells, there's lots of activity inside the cell. And so, this particular FGF, FGF10, is important for all of these branching organs. I guess that's kind of quite a clever evolutionary trick then, is if you need to make something that's branchy that releases fluid, like a pancreas or breasts or salivary glands, you'd kind of do it in the same way. Yes, these mechanisms are absolutely conserved, which is a, a brilliant trick of nature, if you like to think of it that way. Um, and so this way you don't have to use all these different genes. And it's nice in development because you only have certain pathways that you can use, but it's also nice for therapy because that means that what I find in the salivary gland could be used to help people who have problems with their pancreas 
or maybe with your, uh, your tears. Your tears are also made from a branching organ. Um, your lungs are also a branching organ. And so the things that I have found in the salivary gland could also be used to treat people with defects in their lungs, in their kidneys, pancreas, any branching organ. So I guess by using these same kind of pathways, the same molecules, it means that really there isn't such a thing as a salivary gland gene that makes a salivary gland or a breast gene that, that makes your boobs. That's absolutely right. And sometimes I know that I wish there was a salivary gland gene. It would make my life a lot easier. But on the other hand, it's very fascinating to me that the same pathways are used in different organs that do different things at different stages of development and even in different disease states. And so it's also important to note that the pathways I study in salivary glands, these FGFs, they're really important for cancer because these same pathways that are essential for normal development get altered in cancer. And so it's nice that the things that I learn about normal FGFs, I can apply to cancer. And so it's kind of like teasing apart a puzzle. And you already know the pieces, but they're going to fit together differently. It's kind of the solution, isn't it, to how we only have 20,000 genes, but we make all these amazing different tissues. And I sometimes think, oh, it makes biology really simple because you're only dealing with this many genes. But actually, it's really complicated because all these genes do lots and lots of different things. So I don't know if you played with Legos or building blocks as a child, but I did. I love Legos. I still play with Legos. Um, and biology is a lot like Legos. All the different pieces, they sound so simple. Yeah, 22,000 genes, that, it's not that many, really. Especially you and I are both sitting here. We're both women. We're very different people. And it's because of our 22,000 genes. It's the way the different Lego pieces are fitting together. And so once you know some of the rules, you can see how you can take the same Lego pieces and you can build an airplane, you can build a castle, you can build a Star Wars thing like I did over Christmas. You can do lots of things with Legos, and genes are the same way. And that's why you can use these same genes to develop a salivary gland, to develop mammary gland, lots of different things, because they're just like Legos. And what's going to be the journey from the kind of lab studies that you're doing to finding these treatments? Is this just the first steps along the pathway? These are some of the first steps. In our laboratory, we have multiple projects to look at this. And in one of them, we're treating with another secreted growth factor called neuturin, and it influences the nerves within the salivary gland. And so one of our, it's a little closer to the clinic than what I'm currently working on, is we hope that if we can give neuturin to patients in their salivary glands that have lost salivary gland function, that maybe we can turn back on the salivary gland. And so that's a little bit closer to therapy than, yes, the very early stages of my personal project on FGFs. And now you're, now you're having a quick swig of coffee. Can you feel your salivary glands working? <laughs> yes, you can. Um, coffee is rather bitter, so it, they too turn on. But seriously, everyone should take a sip of lemonade. It's beginning to be very hot. It's very hot where we are here in Hong Kong. If you take a sip of cold lemonade, you'll be able to feel your salivary glands turn on. And it's it's really fascinating that you can feel this. And so the next time that you're eating, try to remember that your salivary glands are working really hard for you to have a healthy life. And we should really care about salivary glands, even though most of the time they work just fine and we don't even realize they're there. Jennifer Simmons from the U.S. National Institute of Dental and Craniofacial Research. And next... Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday dear Dolly the Sheep, happy birthday to you. 
After 277 attempts, Dolly, the world's first cloned mammal, was born on the 5th of July 1996 at the Roslyn Institute in Edinburgh, thanks to the work of Ian Wilmot, Keith Campbell and their talented colleagues. However, her existence wasn't revealed to the world's media until several months later, in February 1997. Living until seven years of age before succumbing to lung disease and producing six normal lambs of her own in the usual biological fashion, Dolly was living proof of the power of reproductive cloning, taking the DNA of an adult cell, in this case from a mammary gland of an adult female sheep, and putting it into a sheep's egg cell from which the DNA had been removed. Arguably the most famous sheep in the world, Dolly's creation sparked huge scientific and sociological discussions, with some people accusing scientists of playing God and riding down a slippery slope to human cloning, while others saw potential advances for biomedical and agricultural research, as well as opening a door onto understanding how the unique environment of the egg can wind back the biological clock of an adult cell and turn it back into an embryo. One. Since then, we've seen an entire menagerie of cloned animals appearing, from cloned cattle, camels and cats, to dogs, mules and even monkeys. But, as yet, no cloned humans, due to an international moratorium on the practice. We'll be bringing you a special edition of the Naked Genetics podcast from a symposium being held at the Roslyn Institute in September, looking in detail at Dolly's scientific legacy. You're listening to the Naked Genetics podcast with me, Dr. Katani. Still to come, our gene of the month is going round in circles. But now, big data is the big thing in science right now, with researchers around the world generating and trawling through ever bigger data sets in search of answers to ever bigger questions. And, unsurprisingly, advances in gene sequencing technology have produced some huge piles of data for the number crunchers to play with. So what are they doing with it? Demandra Harkness is the author of the new book Big Data, Does Size Matter? And I started by asking her, what exactly do we mean by big when it comes to data? Part of the idea of it being big is obviously that there is a lot of it and that's one of the reasons we're able to do so much with the human genome is that we're able to work through masses and masses of bits of information and computers are able to process it really fast and make sense of it. And that's why we've gone from the human genome taking years and costing billions of dollars to doing it within weeks for a thousand dollars. So that's one thing. But the other thing that a neuroscientist called Paul Matthews described to me is the difference between large data and big data is large data is just lots and lots of the same kind of data. But big data is different types of data that you can put together to get a more rounded picture. So for example, scientists like him might take genetic data but put it together with brain scans and even with the postcodes of where people have lived and weather reports from those areas so that you could get a picture of somebody's health that takes into account their genetics but also the environment they've been in and what illnesses they've developed and really start to see how those factors interact. What sort of information can we get out then? How is this useful being able to make all these, this network of links rather than just going, okay, that links to that? 
Well, obviously, there are some cases where there's one gene you can identify and say that will cause you to develop this disease. But most of genetics doesn't actually work like that, that what it does is gives you a propensity for something or a risk for something. And then you're starting really to look statistically and saying, OK, you're more at risk of this because of this gene. Or, well, we've noticed that a lot of people with this combination of genes go on to develop this but not all of them so maybe we need to look at other factors and see if perhaps there's some lifestyle thing that you could avoid and and that would cut down your your genetic risk or whether there's something else going on that we haven't found yet that's in combination with the genes because you know it's a nice idea that genes are just a digital thing and if the gene is there something will happen and if it's not it won't but that's really not at all how it works. Is there a problem with too much data in genetics? I talk to scientists and they say oh god we're just getting so much sequencing data or so much data from our experiments that we don't have time or the computing power to get through it. I think that is a problem because it's almost as if the ease of gathering data and the the ability to store loads of data that we didn't have before makes it the default. So you think, well, I might as well collect this because I can. But that doesn't necessarily get you any closer to the answers. So, yes, there is the problem of actually being able to meaningfully process it. But the other thing is, a few years ago, I think there was a first flush of excitement about big data and people started saying, oh, well, theory is dead. We don't need theories now because we'll basically just tip all our data into a massive computer and the computer will do all the work and spit out the answers and we won't even have to ask the questions. Sequence all the things. Exactly. <laughs> and, and it's like, oh, we, we, yeah, correlation will just give us all the answers. We won't even care why things happen because all we need to see is which things happen together and that will enable us to prevent things. And I think people are calming down a bit now and going... Well, when we said theory was dead, we just meant it was having a bit of a lie down and obviously we will still need causality and actually we will sometimes still need a hypothesis, but the two can work together. So you might look at some data and your what's essentially an artificial intelligence driven uh, computer which has been looking at it for you might say here are some interesting patterns you might want to look at these there might be something here and then you go away and use your human judgment and think oh well no actually I can see why it's flagged that up but there's a perfectly simple real world explanation why people who live in cold climates might have lower vitamin D uh, because there's less sunshine and when the sun is out it's too cold to expose your skin to it or there might be something genuinely new that you would never have sorted before and then you can form a hypothesis and go and investigate it and then vice versa you might think I have a feeling from my other research there might be a link here now let's go back and look at the masses of data and let the computer do the trawling to see if there really is something there. Are we going to start to get closer to answering some of those really big questions like how do you go from the code in DNA to, to building a baby? I think it's certainly got massive potential and I think scientific research is one of the really big areas of potential for big data and certainly the people I've spoken to are very excited about being able to deal with a lot of information and also to combine things that you could never practically have combined before but as I say I think the, I think the people who a couple of years ago maybe we're getting overexcited and saying this will transform everything and you won't even really need scientists because the computers will just tell us everything are now starting to say actually no you still need the human mind to make sense of it but now we have some amazing new tools to get us there a lot quicker.
Tamandra Harkness, and her book, Big Data, Does Size Matter, is out now, published by Bloomsbury Sigma. And also a quick reminder that my own book, Herding Hemingway's Cats, Understanding How Our Genes Work, is also out now, available in hardback, ebook, and audiobook. According to the journal Nature, it's a witty, clued-up report from the front lines of genetics, while one of my heroes, Radio Lab presenter Robert Krulwich, described it as a gorgeously written, surprisingly gripping introduction to everything we've learned about genes since the famous Human Genome Project several years ago. So go on, give it a read. And finally, it's time for our Gene of the Month, and this time it's Roundabout. First discovered in fruit flies in the early 90s, Roundabout is responsible for making a molecule that helps to guide the growth of the long tails of nerve cells, called axons, in the developing embryo, enabling them to make the journey from one side of the fruit fly larva to the other. In animals with a faulty version of Roundabout, the nerve axons start heading out in a straight line, but double back on themselves and end up growing round in circles, just like a car driving round and round on a roundabout. Some human versions of Roundabout, known as robogenes, and their receptors have been implicated in a process called angiogenesis, the way in which new blood vessels grow into a tumour, as well as other aspects of cancer growth. And there are even tentative links between variations in human robogenes and dyslexia, or even psychopathy. But much more work is needed to figure out whether the link is real, or whether the scientists are just going round in circles. That's all for now. I'll be back next month, looking back over 40 years of the groundbreaking book by Richard Dawkins, The Selfish Gene. If you've got any questions or feedback, just email me, genetics at thenakedscientist.com. You can also get in touch through the main Naked Scientist Facebook page or tweet me at Naked Genetics. Every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is available on iTunes and online at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast is brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll see you next month for another peek inside your genes.